I ask people a couple of things. Do you have a mentor and do you have a sponsor? Most people say they have, oh yeah, my boss is a mentor. And I say, no, 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 that's not a mentor. You go to a mentor because you really like them for what you see. And I would say not one person is going to serve everything for you, but really knowing what it is you want to learn and develop and working with that person or a group of people. A sponsor is somebody that is has seen you work, really believes in you and will help you. And I think it's a two-way street, but they're in the room when the decisions are made about you and they're pounding on the table saying, Dino needs this job. I need him in this role. He can do it. Yes, it's a stretch. I will be there. Welcome, I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked to Jason Greer, an entrepreneur and book author specialized in labor relations and an expert in DEI. We talked about building bridges between managers and employees to create positive work environments. We also had a deep and candid conversation on race. Jason is the author of Bias, Racism and the Brain, a book that combines storytelling and neuroscience to explain and find solutions to the issue of racism. As a reminder, at the end of March, I will pick my favorite podcast review on Apple Podcasts and send the author a copy of that book. Today, our guest is Kristen Yoshida. Right now, Kristen coaches people, and specifically women, on how to advance their career in corporate America. Kristen is incredibly qualified to coach people on this topic. For the past 20 years, she had a very successful career as an international tech strategy and transfer pricing expert. She did that in-house at a major international corporation, and for many years, she was a partner at one of the big four. In our conversation, Kristen talked about her roots as a fourth-generation Asian immigrant to Canada. She talked about her sense of family and how that influenced her career choices and places where she had to make decisions that maybe ran counterintuitive to what her tradition was. She also talks about how her international work experiences have helped her broaden her perspective. And finally, we had a good conversation about the dynamics of becoming a partner in a major professional services firm. Throughout our conversation, she had a lot of very practical advice that will be incredibly helpful to anybody who is trying to be more intentional about the way they manage their career, whether it is within the context of a major professional services firm or within any corporate environment. Enjoy. Kristen, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. And why don't we start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Okay, thanks so much for having me, Dino. My name is Kristen Yoshida. I am currently based in Houston, Texas, but I am a Canadian. And after having a wide and varied career living in a number of different countries and working in corporate America, I have now focused or refocused my career on building and developing diversity and inclusion and coaching individuals of underrepresented groups to thrive in the corporate environment. Yes, and you're actually eminently qualified to do this because prior to this, you've had a significant career in a big professional services firm and in a line of work and within an industry that 
is traditionally not necessarily an easy field for women to get to the level of senior leadership that, that you got to. So why don't we start by telling us how you chose the field and where your journey and your career began? Yeah, so I think it was interesting because if I look back at the early, you know, when I was finishing university and I studied environmental studies, I did urban and regional planning. And what I really learned from that was that it was a great education because you got to see a lot of broad topics. You had to study, you know, urban design, and then you also had to study statistics and things like that. And when I left university, I really thought, gosh, what do I want from my career? And I really felt like I there were a couple of things. I wanted to work in a large organization and I wanted to work internationally. So up until that time, I'd lived in the same house my parents moved into when I was six months old. They still live there today. You know, they've lived there a long time. And I really hadn't seen a lot of the world. And so I thought Canada is a great place to live, but I want to see other places. And as a daughter of within an Asian family, even though I didn't associate myself as being Asian, I look the part. I don't speak it. And culturally, it's very integrated. One of the cultural values was family and for women, safety. So how could I do this? I needed to tell my parents I was not allowed to go backpacking alone through Europe. That's like what you do when you finish. Uh, I said, I'm going to go to business school. And where am I going to go to business school? I'm going to go to business school in Europe, because that's how I was going to see Europe. So that was my journey. And from that, I think the, the part about big, being in a big company or being in corporate was something that really my parents felt and instilled upon me because of their family background and the history of being Japanese Canadians during the war. They were both interned. My mother was born in an internment camp during World War II, and my father was put in one when he was two years old. I think what they felt was is that safety or security was to work in a large company. So I think that's where I got it from. There's so much in this answer. I just want to try to remember everything that you said. I want to start by, so you went to school to Europe. Where did you go to school? And what was it experience like? Yeah, it was a very daunting experience because the other fact was is that I hated being away from home when I was a child. So my big fear factor was being away. So I applied to a school in Italy because I was thinking, okay, where do I really want to go? That's really, I've seen pictures and beautiful. Italy is really good. So I applied to Bocconi because my parents would, you know, I said, I've applied to the number one business school in Italy. <laughs> And I actually got in. So now what are they going to say? They said, okay, I guess you can go. What the experience was like, it was daunting. The, the program was in English. Um, and it brought together a number of people from like 26 countries or something like that at the time. Huge diversity, which was great. But I did not speak any Italian. So... When I got there, first of all, I thought at the airport, everybody was like, Ushita, Ushita. And I'm thinking, they're calling my name, not knowing that Ushita is, is exit. <laughs> so that was the first thing. The other thing was, is going to school was okay, like, because it was in English. 
But living in Italy, I got a really great lesson. I'd go to the markets. You know what it's like. You know, you go to the markets to buy your groceries. But I didn't. First of all, it was everything was in metric. So, and I only knew kilos. So I ordered. I would order a kilo of oranges and a kilo of lettuce. So you get a kilo of oranges is like three oranges. Do you know how much lettuce you get? For a kilo, it's like a huge bag. So my shopping at the first couple of times was a little erratic. Um, But it was a great lesson about appreciating different cultures. First of all, it's kind of interesting because you mentioned that a lot of your choices were guided by this idea of culture of safety. And then you fling yourself into a foreign country where you don't even speak the language. It's not like you went to the UK or Australia. So I think that's an interesting observation in terms of your willingness to take maybe a little more risk than you're giving yourself credit for. (laughs) It's funny because I think those extremes, I, I look back now and I think I'm a very safe person in a lot of ways, but I'll do risky things in a fairly safe environment. So no, I wouldn't travel on my own backpacking, but going into an environment of like, I'm going to school, so there's a structure and there's a network there. That's what helped me. But you're right, I do what some people would never do, which is leave. You obviously came through the experience very successfully. And I'm curious, what the dead do for your mindset, maybe as you were taking more challenges in your career and making choices in terms of having gone just through that and what you learned there? So for me, what it did was it allowed me to break home. And my parents, it's a running joke in my whole family, because that was the most expensive year for them of, you know, me being away, everybody had to come at some point to visit me, the phone bill, you know, in the in the 90s, long distance phone bill, like it was expensive. But it did teach me that I could do a lot of things. And now, as a leader, having a discussion with people about choices that they're making, I think it's interesting because I have that perspective of, well, if it doesn't work out, you can always go home. And so I was, I guess, a little bit, I have to remind myself that that's not always in the framework and really of, of people's mindsets and that their values are really deep-seated, can be deep-seated, and and change is okay. The other thing that helped me realize this was my grandmother, who was, one on one side of the family, my grandmother did immigrate from, from Japan to Canada. And she was quite young. She was a mail-order bride, is what we call it in the old days. So when I got home from my time away doing my master's, she said, you know, you were very lucky that your mother and your family came to visit you. She goes, I moved to Canada and I didn't go home for 40 years. So (laughs) so she said, you know, it's a little bit of tough love. (laughs) That's a great story. Leave it to grandma to impart some wisdom on us. So you survive Bocconi, you graduate, and I should also share that I am also a Bocconi graduate, even though from a different school. What was the next step? in your journey that led you to become a tax strategy expert and ultimately landed you where you are today in Texas? Yeah. So I'm not, I'm an economist by trade. And so I was doing one of the things is I wanted to work in international business. And so when I finished my master's degree, I 
entered into this little known consulting area that is in tax, but it's more economics of studying the pricing of goods and services amongst multinationals. And you hear about it a lot now in the financial news. What I was most interested in is how the opportunity to see how different large organizations work around the world because of the cultural aspects and the and the challenges. I took a job in consulting. I learned about it. Actually, I ended up, I did a, an internship with that organization in London. So that was great. It, it actually, the, the whole education experience just opened the doors for me to broaden my network. That's really the biggest value. Although I didn't know it at the time, it got me my first internship in London. It got me my first role in the US. Um, I ultimately spent 12 years back in, in the UK working, both in consulting and then also doing the same type of work in-house. My mental model was that if I had a technical strength, like that would get me to where I wanted to go, wherever that was. But it helped sort of ground me. I think what I've learned now is that it takes a broader set of skills and the technical aspect gets you only so far. And it was extremely helpful just to have all those different experiences. So the moving countries was really important because it taught me I could move, which allowed me to have very rich experiences. And it also showed me sort of the cultural differences between countries and also regions of countries that really I, I really appreciate now. Yeah, you just mentioned something that is really, really important. And, you know, one of the hardest transitions for people to make in their career is a transition from being a high-performing technical expert to becoming a manager and then a leader. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to share, as you were progressing through your career and, and within your organization, what were some of the ways that you started broadening your skills from just being a technical expert? And what were some of the building blocks, if you will, in becoming a leader? I think there's a couple of points. One was I was with a consulting firm in London, and I had moved fairly quickly through the organization. And I hit a point where I wasn't really sure if I wanted to be a partner. And at the time, I was influenced a lot by the people that I worked with. I ended up in this really great group that was very nurturing. The leaders were pretty great. But I could also see that those leaders were getting to that point of retirement. And I was a little concerned about what it would look like going forward. And this partnership thing was a real mystery to me. I hadn't thought much about it. It was fairly easy to get, you know, the first few promotions. The first time I got stopped in terms of I didn't get it when I wanted And that was the key thing is I hadn't, I just sort of said, well, I've gotten a promotion every 12 to 18 months. Why wouldn't I get another one? And it was really at that critical point in which somebody said to me when I didn't get it, first of all, the team was really great. Like the senior leaders of the team were really great. And they said, they started prepping me, like, don't be upset if you don't get it was basically it. So, and, you know, 
Like you could figure it out. And then I had a conversation with somebody who was like the top leader and, and it was actually a woman. She said, you know, Kristen, you're, you're doing really well. Your issue is, is that I have to deal with the lowest performers and that's what I'm really focused on. You're doing a really great job at your level. What you haven't done, if you noticed around you, is what are the people doing that got who got the promotions? They're acting like the, at the level that they want to get to. And it was a real mind shift. So I, I share that with everybody I talk to, particularly the people that are in my charge that I'm trying to assess if they're ready or not. And look, I get it. Everybody is really ambitious. And it tells you when you get a promotion, it tells you, you're doing a good job. You are valued, all of those things. And so it was a great lesson for me that I always remember now. But that was the first indication that I hadn't done everything that I needed to. And nobody tells you these things. At the beginning, it's like you don't go to school. When I went to business school, they didn't tell you all the how, like they say, you need a network, but they don't tell you what to do with that network. You need to do all these. They talk about the technical expertise and it's so, so much more. Yes, you just said something else that is also really important. And that's the idea of starting modeling the behaviors for the next level. And obviously, there are some good ways and bad ways to model that. If you were talking to somebody right now who is starting to demonstrate that they're ready to be at the next level, you know, within the service industries, what are some of the behaviors and the choices that you would suggest they make to show that they're actually ready to be at the next level? So it's interesting. Somebody came to me, they wanted to be promoted to the first level of what you'd say you're the partnership track which is a, a managing director or an associate partner. And it was a great lesson for me and for him. He said, you know, I, I really need your support. I'm getting indications from my leaders that I'm not ready. And I have done this. And he, he was very specific. He goes, you know, I am great at client service, which is number one thing. I have taken these clients that we have and I have grown them into X million dollar clients like absolutely he had done a great job and I worked with him on projects that had multiple disciplines I think the difference was in acting at that level is what he hadn't done is he hadn't grown the overall pie so you can grow there are many pies in this scenario but a client is seen as a pie. So you grow the client relationship with multiple service lines. If you're in professional services, what they really wanted to see him doing was growing the pie by bringing in new clients. And there is this, it used to be that, you know, in the accounting side, it's, you know, this transition of the partner brings on a new senior manager, they nurture them and develop them into a partner and they take over that client and then the next partner goes on. So it's like this chain. Whereas now it is like very much segmented. Everybody has their own P&L, particularly in the consulting side of the business. So you need to be saying, can you go out and grow relationships? And that is the hard thing. It's also hard 
because once nobody's paying attention to you until they take notice of the clients that you've got and it feels a little bit inauthentic. So, you know, the relationships internally. So this individual, that was one is how do you demonstrate you are going, you are at that next level. It's like, You've learned to grow relationships based on the existing clients, but now you're starting to go out and develop new clients. And those ones are much harder to do. Those ones are like you have to build from the ground up. And that is really hard for a young up and coming partner to do. And it's something that is a real challenge. But you did it because you made your way up to a pretty senior level of partnership and you're the last organization you worked at. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, when I returned back, so I'd spent a number of years in house and doing the technical work because I made that decision because A, I didn't know if I wanted to be a partner and B, I wanted to know what companies did with the information, the consulting work that we did. And so when I came back out, it meant two things. One is I was coming back out into consulting And it required another move to Texas this time. So I moved from Europe to Houston. And that meant that I didn't really know anybody. So I had to start from, I would say, a negative. Because then when I got here, I had realized that they had made an attempt before the organization and hadn't been successful. And because they didn't go in with senior enough people, like they started with like a, a manager who you really didn't have that experience. And there had been some feathers that were ruffled. So I spent the first year apologizing to other partners about <laughs> people I hadn't met before, but they hadn't had a great relationship. And so reestablishing. So you had like a partial team that hadn't been trained. So it was like a it was a big learning curve for me and and things that I hadn't quite thought all the way through when I was envisaging. The one thing I did say to my husband, because we had spoken about it, he's been a great support, was I said, you know, if I'm gonna go back out into consulting, I really think I'm gonna make a go of it to be a partner because let's face it, I'm going to be working really hard. And he said, well, that's really good that you're finally going to be honest with yourself. So the partnership track, and especially when you did it, is traditionally more challenging for women. In addition, it is more challenging for women with a diverse background. And you chose to do it in a part of the country and in an industry, the energy industry in Texas, that especially at the time was one of the classic good old boy network. So what were some of the steps that you took to break down the network and ultimately build a successful partnership practice? There's a couple of things. One is I had to build my network. And so there's the things that I have learned about it by talking to other people. I saw a lot of women in my time drop out. And very clearly, there are a couple of things that were challenging. One is Selling feels very uncomfortable, and it was definitely uncomfortable for me at the beginning. And I think that's one of the things that we could do a better job of is helping up-and-coming partners when they're looking at that, at that track is to feel that. But the number of times I've had women say, I just don't, I don't want to go for it because there's this number on my back. 
and they don't know how they're going to do it. I've now realized the internal networks, the unseen networks aren't yet there built for women. So there's a role for that. And that's what I'm focusing on now. The other thing was, is breaking down barriers. It is about relationships. And so there's a multitude of things that you need to do in order to build that network. I would say over time, I learned to build the relationships internally and externally. But there were definitely people, do you know, that were not interested in supporting me or other women like me. It takes a lot longer. And I think in the last few years, particularly the last two or three years, I think there's more of an outward commitment. But because you still have, let me just give you a few statistics, you're 80% more likely if you're a white male to get promoted than if you are a black or Asian female, you're like 70% less likely to be promoted into senior leadership. You know, if everybody enters in, not everybody, like one of every background, but just sort of in the, in the relative terms. And I think it's really around how meritocracy works. Meritocracy works if all the systems in place help everybody out. But there are things that are done that are unintentional. And what results is a disproportion of the distribution of all the different underrepresented groups. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And I think that ties into sort of another part of the conversation. So the professional services in general have a different model of working than regular companies. And you've touched upon the importance of being good at selling, but as you move up the leadership path in a professional service, there's a lot of other skills that come into play. And I wonder if you would be willing to share how you thought about, you know, additional skills and, and then how to lead within that context. The type of work that I did in principle is very simple and very straightforward. It's really in the nuances about how you present information, what it is, you know, you're dealing with governments, not just the multinational, you're dealing with governments and their views. Um, and they view the pie as sort of, and the, the game is zero sum. So if you're not, if you're not getting this part of piece of the pie in this country, somebody else is getting it. So it's really hard to please everybody. Developing the skills around relationships, it really came down to, as you go into leadership, leading through others, this is a concept that was really, power and influence is really important and challenging for women and particularly Asian women. So I didn't see it when I was younger. The challenges I now see are some of the values and beliefs that I had. So for instance, I was the firstborn child and grandchild. And it was really important, like family was everything because that's what I was brought up on. Um, and so I felt like I needed to have a family. As a matter of fact, my grandfather would annually come over after I finished college and say, so you've finished university. I think it's time to get married. And then the next year, and I said to him, well, I've, I think after that, I said, well, I'm going to work for a while. 
And then he came again the next year and he said, okay, you've been working for a year now. I think it's time to get, my grandmother would send him over. Your grandmother thinks that it's time for you to get married. And I said, well, I'm going to Italy. <laughs> but you can see this family thing is really important. I didn't have children until I was a little bit older. Like, And what it meant to me was that I had to make choices. So I was brought up, you can have it all. But I realize now you can have it all, but not all at once. So you have to pick and choose. And then I didn't realize until somebody pointed it out to me that people were going to judge me and make pre-judgments about what my, my ambitions were. And what you hear still is like a lot of people prejudge women like, oh, she's of that certain age. She'll probably want to have a family. And then she'll be out. And that is still a common, even though, and I get this, it's illegal. It's still human nature. But I think one of the things that I have learned for leadership is that you really have to have those conversations. And I think I have had this more, and I, I would challenge a lot of men if they've had this conversation. Young women in the profession have come to me and said, I'd really like to have a family but how is that going to negatively affect my career? And I have said, I will do everything in my power to make sure that things are fair, meaning you get the same opportunities, but we have to discuss. Now, I'm not sure that somebody in your team, for instance, in corporate, Dino, would have said to you, I'm thinking about having a, a baby or a family. How is that going to affect my job? I just think that when you have more women who are juggling all of these things, it's easier to have those conversations and make accommodations. Yeah, that is definitely true. And, and I think that it's baby steps. I think we're still far from optimal, but there's progress even compared to 10 years ago. I was wondering, as, as you think about the influencing nature of the service business, so I think one thing that has always fascinated me is the fact that at some point, technically, theoretically, all partners are equal, and, it, and it's a decision process and a management process that is a little more complex and less about straight authority and more about advocating. And so what are some of the lessons for people who may end up in situations where, you know, they are accountable for something, but they don't have the formal authority and some of the lessons that they could gather from your experiences. I think that's, as I look back at the experiences that I've had, influencing is a lot about, again, relationships and building trust. And that is something that is an important skill and how you do it. And this is where the break comes is that, and I'll talk through the people that I work with now, who, if you come from an Eastern culture, you see things very differently than a Western culture, I'll say. And this is about stated authority and then influence. Stated authority is you, Dino, are the boss and you, whatever you say goes. Okay, but in an organization, I would hold you to that. And I would expect you to do a lot of things for me. If I come to you with a problem, I, I expect you to sell, sort it out because you are the boss. 
Whereas you're probably looking at me going, okay, you got a problem. What are you going to do about it? And this influencing concept is really interesting when you break down sort of, you bring a bunch of people together in an organization, even in like in the US, very multicultural. The importance of really understanding and talking through with people about what that is. And, you know, you look at me and you say, why aren't you getting this done? I'm looking at you saying, why aren't you helping me out? <laughs> and that's one of the things, the influence part is really interesting when you, you have this group of people that have all these backgrounds is trying to figure out what the best part is that you're going to get out of that person you work with. Flip side is that somebody comes to me and I talk them through it. And I try and help them out because I'm trying to solve it. But they actually wanted just to like unload and feel better about it and then go off. So it's a real dynamic. If I'm the leader, or you're the leader, how you get your leadership stuff and influence reading the situation and then coming up with a plan when it's not clear to either side who's got the influence and the authority. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. I want to look a little bit of the places where you actually have a former leadership role. So as you raised up through the ranks and find yourself leading people and leading teams, how did you form your leadership style? And then how would you define your leadership style when you're leading people directly? So definitely a, more of a coaching style and nurturing style. So building on relationships by nature, I'm quite introverted and nobody ever seems to believe me because I do like to talk to people, but I think it's more one-on-one. -on -one. My most uncomfortable experiences when I is, was when I had to get on a stage and speak. That is very uncomfortable for me, but working in small groups, I loved being around people and do love being around people. So that's my style is working through a situation and nurturing people. And I think the influence came from when I was very young in the first few years in this group that I was working with that I mentioned before, they were, you know, the philosophy of the, I was a manager and there was another person who was a senior manager looking to get promoted to that director level. And he said to me, look, Kristen, I'm going to really help you build your skills and I'm going to get you to do things in this job that are, you know, a little bit of a stretch. My goal is to get you to replace me because he had this vision. If I replace him, he will be pushed up as well. And I loved, first of all, I love that he stated it so clearly to me. And then the other thing is, is that he was true to his word and he really developed me. I still call him to this day. I also was able to return the favor and was able to help him get his next role when he was looking for a new opportunity. And so those relationships are, are circular. It's not just a one-way direction. And I really, I have loved that. That's been most helpful to me. Yeah, it's really powerful when you find those mentors that follow you through your whole life, you know, whether they're actually present or whether you can go back in a situation and think, you know, what would she do in this situation? 
I want to close this part of this conversation about leadership with this question. You mentioned that there are now you're doing work advising people on how to advance their career, how to develop themselves. So if we want to summarize everything that we've talked about so far, someone comes to you, they want to take a more proactive role in developing their leadership in advancing their leadership position within an organization. What are the two or three most important things that they should do? I ask people a couple of things. Do you have a mentor and do you have a sponsor? Most people say they have, oh yeah, my boss is a mentor to me. And I say, no, 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 that's not a mentor. And they also say the boss is a sponsor. Most people that I've worked with, we've worked on building out their entire network internally and externally to look at the people that they come across. You see a lot of people, they will stay in their jobs for 10 or 15 years, and then they will hit, eventually, everybody does, they hit some roadblock. And what it is, is the relationships, we really nurture the relationships. And then we look at moving beyond the technical skills, and saying, what is it that you need to do to grow? And I'll give you one little example, I'm working with an individual who's actually been brought to the US to work to develop they will eventually go back to their home country. They were told point blank, we are putting you in a completely different area because you need to know a broader sense of the business. And that individual has had to learn both a whole new skill set way out of their comfort zone, but also has gotten to see how decisions are made in the mothership, right? And it's been very eye-opening to them. But the thing is, is that has served them well is the one core strength that they had that they didn't really realize was that they were able to build relationships with people. And that person, all they were focusing on was the technical skills that they didn't have. And now they're flung into a new group and didn't know how to use a spreadsheet, didn't know how to do any of you know the technical math that was required. But if you anchor yourself in what you are really good at, you found somebody to help them with the with the modeling and the technical, able to build other relationships and give a broader context, that is really important. They will go back to their country and be a leader there. All right. So let me re-paraphrase what you said, and then I'm going to ask you one final question on this topic. So first thing is create opportunity to broaden and grow. Be aware of what you're really good at and use that as a launching platform for whatever you do so that you're anchored in a base of success. And then you mentioned find a good mentor and find a good sponsor. And so what makes a good mentor and what makes a good sponsor? You go to a mentor because you really like them for what you see. And I would say you don't just have one mentor. You have to have like not one person is going to serve everything for you, but really knowing what it is you want to learn and develop and working with that person or a group of people. A sponsor is somebody that is has seen you work, really believes in you and will help you. And I think it's a two-way street, but they're in the room when the decisions are made about you and they're pounding on the table saying, Dino needs this job. I need him in this role. He can do it. Yes, it's a stretch. 
I will be there. But it's a relationship. It's not just one way. And you don't always get to pick those. You need to nurture them. Some people say they pick you, they self-select to be your sponsor, but you want those relationships. And it's not the person, the person that you report to, yeah, has a job to go into that room and say, Dino's done a great job, but everybody else is going to pick it apart because they've got their guy. So you need other people. So you can't put it all, all your eggs with your manager. Okay, great. I think that's a fabulous point. And I think hopefully people who are thinking about growing their career now have two or three extra items that they can go out and remember. Again, as Kristen said, your sponsor and your mentor are not your boss. So start looking around inside and outside of your organization to figure out who they're going to be. I want to move to the personal now. And, and the first question that I have for you is, do you have passions outside of work? Is there one that has served you well and has impacted the way that you work? Actually, it's one that I learned from my husband. So he, when we moved to Texas, he decided he wanted to try a triathlon. And we joke about it. I hope you won't mind me saying this. His first triathlon was in Austin and he dog paddled the swim portion of it. And I got it on video. Fast forward 10 years, he is now this year, our focus as a family is he has decided he is going to do four Ultraman triathlons in one year. That's a serious commitment. <laughs> if you don't know what an Ultraman triathlon is, it's like 6.2 miles of swim, 270 miles or something of biking and a double marathon. And it's spread over three days. So you get to sleep in between. But doing four in one year is a little, we're taking it one at a time. He just did one beginning of February. He's doing one in March. And then the next one will be in June. So each I've said to him, okay, let's see if you finish each one. We'll just add on one more, but is in his mind, he's doing four. And for me, that is a time. It's so much work. I am the safety crew. A lot of the times there's like a van, you have to make sure he doesn't get hit, you have to keep him fed. It's actually helped us in our marriage, because we have to communicate it doesn't go so well, sometimes if I don't have the right food ready for him or something like that. But it's been a really great reinforcer of teamwork and supporting somebody else. He supports me at work incredibly. And I oftentimes in the past have forgotten how much he does do to help out. And I having to do this where he is the lead person and having to direct that and me figuring out how to read his mind sometimes or anticipate what he needs has been a great lesson for me. So it's not exactly my passion, but it's it's helped and our kids get together, they help out. And so it's learn, we've learned teamwork as a family. And for me, that's really important. Being stuck in a van for three days with your, your little kids is like not stuck in the van, but it's a small space. It, it teaches you a lot. <laughs> that is fabulous. Second question. This is my favorite question of the podcast. And it is every era has business jargon that, you know, after a while, it's way overplayed and kind of loses its meaning. What is an expression a business expression or something that drives you crazy right now? Okay, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. I think we need to be very conscious about how 
the roots of comments. And I will say, I'll preface this by saying, I have had some real faux pas if I look back, but now I'm, I'm wanting people to understand. When you say, let's open the kimono, this is one of the heritage one, you really shouldn't say that in the context of business. The roots are of, you know, imperialistic Japan, of which people today have views of geishas. And geishas were very high class, like artisans. But what the West views them as, as in a different derogatory context. And as recently as a year ago, I was talking to somebody who used that phrase with me. And I was kind of like, I'm not sure what to say. But I thought I'd take the opportunity here for your listeners. Please don't say that because it creates this really weird situation. And you could say, oh, you're being too politically correct. But I do think in this current era of equality and words matter. I think if you're not informed, I think it takes away from a leader when they use that terminology or terminology like that. There's so many out there. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm saying we need to be a little bit more conscious about what we say. I agree 100%. Final question, food for the soul or food for the body, you can choose whether you want to share either a recipe or a drink or something that you really love. Or if you want to go to the soul and then that's maybe music, books, art, movies, theater piece, or something that you find nourishing and that inspires you. My husband is Italian, as are you, so food is very important. He didn't know that I could cook for two years, the first two years. But my daughter, who has not been a great eater, has recently, I started taking up making lunches when she went back to school. And so I take great pride in that because for the first 12 years of life, I couldn't do that. And so now I make her these lunches that if my mother had made them when I was going to school, I would have been too embarrassed to eat them because, you know, some of them are Asian. I make Italian food for her sometimes, but pasta, but we also make Japanese food. So I make these little Japanese sandwiches. They're sushi, but they look like a sandwich. And you stuff stuff in them. So for me, that fills her tummy and it fills my soul because she actually really enjoys them. And she's very slick in the marketing. She goes, you know, the kids think I bring the best lunches. So what are you going to make? You got to keep the standard up. So she's very good at managing me as well. But the biggest one right now has been the sushi sandwiches. And there's no raw fish in them. She won't let me do that. But, you know, vegetables and panko chicken. Well, it sounds delicious. All right, Christine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for your insights. I look forward to keep talking to you because full disclosure, we're friends. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate, Dina, all of this time. I really, every time we get together, I love speaking to you and I hope that we continue the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy it too that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends about it and post about it on social media. 
every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode as they come out. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews, please leave us a good rating or review. Specifically, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, remember that at the end of March, I will pick my favorite review and send the author a copy of the book by Jason Greer. As usual, stick around, because at the end of the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Catania, and this time, I have a very special one. If you want to reach out to Kristen, you can find her on LinkedIn. Just look for Kristen Yoshida, spelled K-R-I-S-T-I-N-Y-O-S-H-I-D-A. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number 4. And you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at AL4EDP. And on Facebook, you can find the show page at Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. Since we're in March and this is International Women's Month, I'm going to share a song that Susan wrote a few years ago and then recorded and produced with about 30 other great women singers from the Boston area. It's called Sisters of a Different Skin by Susan Cattaneo and the Woosie Stone Singers. This story isn't his story, it's her story. Yeah. Look at the trouble this world.